uh, a couple of texts to consider. Really, the very first one is from 1 Corinthians. Of course, we're going through 1 Corinthians now. Drew dealt with this text from chapter 3 a few weeks ago, but I wanted to revisit it just for a moment. It's such a, such a great text and really one that for me, when church planting was first an idea, I latched on to early on. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, we read, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So when you're doing something like church planting, that's lingo that you're probably familiar with now. It's starting something completely new. It doesn't exist quite yet. And it's a daunting task when you begin something new. Um, some people maybe who have an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I know some of you exist here. You've started lots of new things, and it's just the next thing. I've never really endeavored by God's grace to begin anything quite this, uh, of this venture, um, church planting. It was new to me, and that's intimidating. And so as we went to an assessment center, and they do a great job, and the PCA, our, our denomination of evaluating whether or not you've got the gift mix that will likely uh, allow you to flourish in a church planting setting because it is a unique calling. It is a unique gift mix as well. And then furthermore, the vision that we felt God had given makes it even more challenging as well. Is anybody really up for this task? So at the end of the day, one of the things that I had to realize, and you along with me, is if God's not in this, it's not going to happen. It just isn't going to be. Because we can put a lot of great things together and strategies and uh, attractions, and, and yet at the end of the day, if God's not in it, it's just chaff that will blow away. And it's something that's been completely man-made. And I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, really at the end of the day, and we're really pursuing the gospel, we don't want that. We don't want to build on something that will just fade away. So we want to say, this is something God has to do. It's easy because we struggle with things as well to think differently maybe sometimes about it. We live in a life where there's a lot of measurements. You know, how big are, are after two, three, four, five years, there's always a question as a pastor, anybody I run into, how big is your church? How many people are attending? And that happens. And frankly, I, it makes sense, right? Because as you probably have heard before, as I've mentioned, the statistics suggest after three years, 80% of church plants close their doors. So eight out of 10 churches who have a vision and, and are, are latching on to this, the hope of something new after three years, they don't exist any longer. It's not to minimize perhaps the work that was done there, but they're not going on. I doubt, for example, most of them said, hey, here's the game plan. We're going to worship for three years and then close our doors <laughs> and move on. I mean, nobody, most people don't plan for that. You want to see something expand and grow. You, you have a vision. But the reality at the end of the day is if, if God isn't in this, 
then it's not going to grow according to his purposes and his plans and his timing. And I, I would suggest even those ones that close after three years, God has used them. God has done something specific, unique, and beautiful. It's kind of difficult to convince yourself of that if you're the one who started it. <laughs> it's hard. Because we are li live in a world of measurements. You know, that's what we can see. That's what we can put on a spreadsheet. And so that question, how, how big are you? How big are you now? How? There's, a, there's a piece of that that we can understand. But, but peeling behind that is a bigger vision of God doing what he will as he wishes in his timing that allows you, if you really grasp that, and believe me, it's tested from Sunday to Sunday, so many Sundays too, when I'm starting, it's like 1030 and the only people, I don't know if you remember these days, if you were here too, are the people up on the, on, on the front doing the music. And you're like, okay, I'm waiting. There's got to be some other people here. Let me turn around and, hey, let's worship to the people who are up here. And ebbs and flows. But God's faithfulness is the strand throughout. It has to be. And maybe one of the things I don't want to do is minimize human agency. You know, Paul doesn't do that here. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, God, watered, God made, it, made it grow. He does see a role. He did do some planting. Apollos came along, did do some watering. God's the one who gets the glory because of growth. It feels a little minimal next, minimizing, because he says, the man who plants and, and waters, we each have a purpose, uh, but really, we're not worth anything. Only, only God who makes it grow. And... And yet, there's this image here next to of the fact that we are God's fellow workers, God's field and God's building, different images that, well, let's remember that at the end of the day, if growth happens, it's God. But you do have a role. Each one of you has a contribution. You're God's fellow workers. You're working with him in this. Um, different imagery. You're God's field, and he's cultivating in you some growth that you also are imaging and taking to others. You're the building. You're the ones he's building up. So one of the dangers might be to say, it's all about God and I'm nothing. And that's not actually accurate. Paul recognizes there is a role. But the other danger might be, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what we've done. And it could be because of my own arrogance and pride that God keeps us about the size that we are right now. And that's okay. This is what God has for us. We chase a vision. We pursue it. There's ups and there's downs. But at the end of the day, God is the one who makes it grow. And isn't it a testimony to his faithfulness that we're in that 20%? That 10 years later, we're still here opening up doors to a different building, the third different building. And yet here we are gathered together singing praises to God, hearing his name lifted up in different tongues. That moment back then was a defining moment, certainly for me and for those who are part of the core team. In God's beauty, a lot of churches start because people are upset with somebody else. They're, they're, just, they're like, I'm so sick of that church. Let's start something new. It's going to be so much better <laughs> than that one. And by God's grace, the people who gathered together on that core team all came because they were attracted to something positive and the vision. They wanted to see that happen, not because they were tired of something else. And that was unique, even for those who have been part of a church plant early on. 
I give thanks to God for that. And he got us to a certain moment in time in my life and theirs and where we all came together and said, let's pursue this vision. Some of you I know are familiar with the Greek notion of time. Even in the Bible itself, you've got chronos and then you have kairos. Again, a review for some of you. Chronological time. That's where we come up with that English word. You have a date and you're moving forward and you look back at a certain time in like today. This is chronologically speaking. It's October, Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. And we can look back at dates in history. We can say our first worship service was October 21, 2012. That's a chronological reality. And yet, when we open up the scriptures, we see God's redemptive history chronologically unfolding and bringing down into it kairos moments as well, opportune moments, specific or appointed times when he's doing something. He's stirring in his people or he's revealing himself. And that's why we open up the Bible and look for, really, it's a collection of kairos moments in chronological time when he speaks to his people and he moves on their behalf and then in chronological time he begins new churches as well some of you are familiar with acts 29 church planting network how many chapters are in the book of acts 28 so acts 29 is the ongoing church planting movement god takes moments in time gathers people and begins something new And he's always moving forward. And part of the Christian life, part of the life with Christ is a series of kairos moments. And some of them are more measurable than others. I would argue we're having a moment like that right now. That God has put into the DNA of our human calendar, chronology, one day in seven kairos opportunities. That's why we gather together corporately. It's like a set-aside kairos moment. And there are times when that feels a little bit more earth-shattering than other times. But what I love about our stories of grace is that's kind of what we're saying. Let's get a picture again of the, the kairos moment, the times that God is working in our lives. And let's celebrate it together because I can't always see it. But when I hear your story, I know that's my story because you're my brother or my sister. And we're knit together. We're living stones brought together. And God is building. We're his his field. We're his fellow workers. And I can celebrate when I hear that story in your life as well. It's a kairos moment. And we have those in our own times as well. God has some significant ones all throughout the Bible. And A little while ago, we went through the book of Joshua, and just to remind you of one particular scene, and actually this is the text I preached on 10 years ago today, and able to say, you know, this is a Kairos moment. You've gathered here together, and we don't know if we'll be around three years from now, or 10 years, but this moment right now, God is at work. And so what we do is we take a moment to celebrate his work, getting us to this point. And in this text, what we see is the people of God celebrating God's work in the past. And that, that is pointing to his presence now, his power, and his faithfulness. Now, just a little reminder, as we get to the book of, of Joshua, there's, there's quite a backstory. They're coming out of the Exodus. They've been wandering for 40 years. God has promised to give them something. Joshua, a new leader, has arisen after Moses. 
He was the guy for a long time. There were no term limits on Moses. You know, being he was there for a, lot, a long time. He was God's right-hand man uh, speaking to them, doing miracles. And yeah, they had problems with him too. His approval rating went up and down, like any leader might a- along the way. But he got them right to the cusp of the promised land, and then he dies. And Joshua is, is the new leader, but he's kind of, well, he's tested, but he's not tested as the, the new leader. And so it's a Kairos moment in Israel's history. What will happen next? And it's massively important because it goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis when he's promised one day the very land they're crossing into. The problem is there's a big river in the way. And it's at flood stage. So it would be impossible for them to navigate with the, some say as many as 2 million people wandering through. Boy, that's quite an army. I'm sure the people in Jericho were taking numbers and saying, we're toast if these guys get across. But look, the river, you can't get across the river. It's swollen. It's impossible. And yet God's telling Joshua, this is what you're going to do. You'll cross the river. But you need to know something. In Joshua chapter 1, he says, I am with you. My presence is with you. This river you're supposed to cross, impossible unless I'm with you. You need to know that I am with you and I am for you. And those two promises are repeated throughout the book of Joshua. And there are two promises that are repeated to the people of God as well. What does Jesus say before he leaves? Surely I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you and I'm for you. Those two promises, no matter what allegorical Jordan River you might be trying to cross at the moment, are ones that have to be precious promises to the people of God. Certainly, Joshua needed that. And so don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. He didn't, we have the benefit of looking back and knowing what happens, but if you put yourself in that moment, he doesn't know. And God tells them, these are the promises I'm giving you. And before they even cross over, another beautiful thing in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, there's somebody over there in Jericho. And they're the kind of person that if you were to give a, 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 a list of options of people God might use for his glory, this person would be last on the list. Rahab. Okay, the shadiest occupation. Oldest occupation around. And God's going to use her, somebody who everybody else would dismiss, and you would say, don't come into my church. you got to clean up a little bit before you come here. God goes, he does this so much. He takes the people that nobody else thinks can amount to anything or who have disqualified themselves, and he says, you. Didn't he do that to, with Paul? What is the greatest missionary of all? Wrote half the New Testament and planted more churches than you know, can be conceived of, it seems like. And he wanted to murder people and kill people. David, a man after God's own heart. Listen to Hashem's story as well. I mean, God does this repeatedly, and here's the thing. Those people splash across the pages, and they're big personalities, and they've made a huge difference. So if you're somebody sitting here right now saying, yeah, that's them, but God can't use me, That's exactly the opposite message to take away from this. Actually, you might be more qualified because other individuals who say, yeah, I got a lot to contribute here. 
I've been so good in all these other areas. This is going to be, this is going to be easy. I'm God's gift to you <laughs> today, even if you don't know it. If you don't know it, you're clearly blind. Let me open up your eyes so you can see. No. This is what I love about the Bible. It's so refreshingly honest. If you feel like you've made a mess of your life and nobody would want you, nobody cares about you, and you believe the lies in, in your mind that are repeated over and over again, I'm a miserable failure. Well, the gospel says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to you I cross, I cling. You, you are well postured for the news that God can employ you probably better than anybody else. It seems like that was Rahab, Rahab's posture in Joshua too. So you've got this, I'm with you, I'm for you, and this person like, okay, somebody on the inside who you wouldn't expect is going to make this Kairos moment in redemptive history happen, but there's still a river flowing in Joshua 3. And what happens is God says, look, as you prepare, I want you to memorialize this moment because you're going to forget otherwise. And God works in some amazing ways as that river is made open so they can cross. And in some really ordinary ways, they take rocks. Does anybody have a pet rock? You know what I mean? Like, it's so great. They don't, you have to take care of them. You can put a little face on them if you want, paint them. And, you know, I, get them. They're awesome. They listen, all that kind of stuff. They're basic elements of earth. They don't have a lot of personality, but it's just like stuff. It's so earthy. The Bible's so earthy. Get rocks and put them in the middle of a river that only God can part. I love this aspect of the Bible, bringing together the transcendence of God. He's amazing. He does things nobody else can do, and the ordinary, imminent parts of God, too. He's right with us in the thick of it. In fact, he wrapped himself in flesh, came down as a man, was a baby and developed in ordinary ways, skinned his knee when he fell on the Israelite scooters of the day. <laughs> he was with us. He's amazing and he's ordinary. He's fully God and fully man. So because of that, every moment I would suggest can be a Kairos moment when Jesus bursts into your life and there's ebbs and flows, but it's all consuming when he comes in and transforms a defining moment. And that's happening here in this scripture in, in, in Joshua chapter 4. See, the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, and the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put Put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be, be, to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. 
So the waters are cut off. They're piling up uh, before there, and the people can walk across. Looking back as well and thinking about the exodus itself. And God says, don't forget this moment. Take stones and memorialize it. That's what verses 6 and 7 say. Do this as a sign among you. Put up markers to remember the significant events in life so you don't forget. So build a 9-11 memorial. So you don't forget. That's literally what we say. Never forget. Because you know, we kind of will otherwise. And you give it enough time and you don't look back and remember what God has done in the past. For me, one of the reasons we do this, I'm not big on celebrations. I mean, my wife is great with birthday parties and everything. It's fantastic. Because my kids, I'm sure they'd remember when they were born, but it'd probably be like an Amazon gift card. Woohoo! You're a year older and let's move on. My, but no, there's banners and cakes and special meals, and it's awesome because I would never do it. But why, 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 why is that done? To remember that you were a gift, and we celebrate the gift that you are. And so when we have things like anniversaries, you remember, you look back. And God put that not only in the Sabbath, but as they did feasts and festivals. Don't forget, don't forget, because you know what it's like? We forget. So we have to remember. And oftentimes in the scripture, why we cherish this, and part of the reason why we open up even the Old Testament, uh, among many others, is because that's who got his faithfulness endures forever. He was faithful to those former generations, and he's not changed. So we need to remember again. And again, it's a sign of his presence right here. The ark is mentioned 17 times in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 4. That was a sign of his presence among his people. I am with you in Joshua chapter 1. It's a sign as well of his power. The flow of the Jordan was cut off, as we've already said. We see his presence in the past and his power, what he's done in the past. And it's a sign of his faithfulness. He did what he said he would do. In Joshua 3, uh, 5, he says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is the sign of my faithfulness to you. He's loyal to his word, present, powerful, and faithful. And that's so common. And I, I just want to invite you from time to time to look back. People who are good, journal, keep, good at journaling benefit from this more uh, because they can read and look, look back and see how things were and remember God's faithfulness. When we lived an ocean apart, Jill and I, I wrote letters, a lot of letters to her. And it, every now and then I'll pull them out and read, and it's interesting to see. You know what a letter is, right? <laughs> it's interesting to see and to read it uh, and, and see God's faithfulness. And my guess is if we uh, wanted to, you could maybe... Look at God's faithfulness even here at, at Redeemer. I, I think of some, some Kairos moments for us as well. Uh, one that sticks out is after, after Ferguson, and we were dialoguing as a, as a church about what happened and, and how we understand this, and, and somebody was very honest about the, uh, the racism in his heart. And it was, it was a hard week of back and forth and conversations and for those of you maybe who were there, you remember this man standing up and confessing his sin of racism and embracing everybody who was a person of color. That, that's a Kairos moment for me. It was hard. I never wanted to go through it again. 
but, pff, you know, welcome to the minority experience, I know. And yet that was significant to me. Even now, we've mentioned it. You know, the Redeemer House, as some of you know, we call it the Redeemer House. It is owned by Liberty Bible Academy. And years ago, when I discovered Liberty Bible, uh, owned that house. And I had some relationships speaking at chapel. And I didn't even realize it was their house. But I said, man, that would be a great space to have. Maybe as a, as a worshiping place. But since my office was my bedroom, it would be great to have a place, you know, besides... Panera or something that's kind of an anchor in the community. So, you know, we've, we've prayed about that for years and God's timing if it's something that he wants. And, you know, one of the great things about that too was my, my niece who had been in a severe car accident, 50-50 chance of survival, came out on the back end for that, of that too and, and in some ways really wrestling with, with her faith a- along the way. But one day when she was visiting, because she was in New Jersey, and I said, that house, that white house right there. I'm praying that one day God, we'd be able to be in there. And she's like, that's great, Uncle Mark. I'll, keep, I'll, I'll pray with you. And so every time we would talk, she asked me about the white house. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. Because there's a family living in there now. They've been in there for quite a while. And they, they, they were trying to move, but because of business reasons, they couldn't. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen. And whatnot too. Well, when COVID struck, um, and the place where we were worshiping said we're shut down, and you can't be here anymore, um, and some other things were going on, it just became clear it was time for us maybe to look for a new location so we could begin worship for those who were able to come back, and you know, navigating through those difficult times and whatnot too. So I was able to reach out to the Liberty Bible Academy. And, uh, and they, uh, they were very gracious to say that you can use this space for a, pr- a price that seemed impossible to me because it was so much lower than what we were paying for that building only for Sunday mornings. And, uh, and then also asked about that White House again. And, you know, we signed a termination of, contra- of the contract August 31st of 2020 with the Seventh-day Adventists. And when I reached out and said, hey, is, is the White House available? Uh, Anna, who actually is here, and she would be horrified if I singled her out <laughs> today too, but this is a testimony to God's faithfulness and goodness because, you know, I, she, she checked in with that family who said we're not moving. And they said, oh, actually we are. We're going to be leaving this place. And so we need to, you know, get, get out of the contract. And you know what the date was that they were leaving? August 31st, the exact date that I had signed for terminating that contract. And then, so I said, okay, Anna, what if, you know, we were able to use that space? And, uh, and, and she was, uh, I think, delighted <laughs> on some level for us to, to come in. It's been such a great working relationship, and we're thrilled because, you know, today we have 70 registered English students from 11 different countries who come through Tuesdays and Thursdays. That place is hopping. And a handful of them stay. I mean, there's good relationships being built. We, we have great conversations, but a handful of them stay for Bible study along the way. And many of them have nev- literally never heard the gospel before. They don't have the categories of God who's created or Christ who has come. It just doesn't exist. What a, what a thrill to look back and see how God has worked in the past and to celebrate that. 
His presence and His power, His faithfulness. And we do something like this and we celebrate. We're not, we're not really just, it's not me you're celebrating, it's God. Now I want to, I mean, God has chosen to use us as human instruments and we can say thank you and acknowledge that. And there's good reason to do it. But the only reason that we can move forward is because of what God himself has done. And I give thanks for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing more stories that unfold in the days ahead. You know, you can probably look back at your own life and see when God has orchestrated events to draw you near. Not just chronologically, but kairos moments. Think back and say, okay, God was at work there. And we can't sustain that level of intensity all the time. But maybe there have been moments of when God has answered a prayer that is, it's impossible otherwise. And God, God showed up and did something that you just cannot measure otherwise. Think about those things. Give thanks. Celebrate those things. Maybe moments of ter- tremendous conviction when, you've, when, you've, when God has shown you the depths of your own sin. How, how ruinous you truly are. See, you thought you were okay. <laughs> and then God smacked you upside the head with a two-by-four and showed you you're an absolute wreck in a mess. It gave you a little glimpse of the darkness of your heart. But then perhaps in that moment too, you said, God, forgive me. And he says, I do. Look at the cross. I have forgiven you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you can't get the depths of that glorious freedom of the children of God unless you know what you're rescued from. Those are kairos moments. Maybe even a time when you're struggling physically with health and, and you're, you're, you feel desperately in need. As C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Those are all signs. And this was a memorial, a sign that really just points to a deeper reality. Because that's what signs do. So he says, put these signs here, a memorial, and and reflect on them. But they're pointing to something that's deeper and and more, more substantive. And, you know, Paul talks about this when he's in the New Testament looking Back at some of the Old Testament celebrations, he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebrations, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Those, those stones were physical, but they were just pointing to something that God did in the past, and they were anticipating something he'll do in the future. They're like shadow to substance. I can see my shadow here, but it's just pointing to something that's real. That's me. And all these shadows, these pictures of of memorial stones being built are waiting for Christ to come. He is the reality. And the beauty of it, too, is now when you attach yourself to Christ, Peter has the image of you being a living stone. We are built together, living stones with the chief cornerstone is Christ himself. And that stone then is the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so we're not limited in scope by, by buildings, though they facilitate worship. You are God's building. You're the living stones. You're the ones God has called. You're the ones who feel like you, you have nothing to offer. And God says, of course you do. Don't believe me? Go back to Joshua 2. Read about Rahab. 
Read about David. Read about Paul. Read about Jonah. Read about Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. Open up your Bible and read just about anybody. Solomon, man, he failed miserably at the end of his life. It's hard to find a good man, a good, good woman from beginning to end in the Scriptures, except for the man Jesus Christ, who was faithful to the end. The second Adam. First Adam failed miserably. We all suffer because of it. Second Adam, perfect. And when we trust in him then, we have his account, his righteousness, his goodness. It's ours. And he takes these stones, misshapen, and builds a beautiful memorial from them. And you're a part of that. And you just happen to be a part in some way of this outpost, this one sign to the world that God is real, that he is present, that he is powerful, that he is faithful. So we can celebrate 10 years with that in mind and hopefully not just find God's work in the defining moments in the past but in the present as well. Look what happens here at the end of this chapter. He said to the Israelites, in the future when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we crossed over. Why did he do this in verse 24? He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This happened so that all the people of the earth, not just the Israelites. Some people think the Old Testament's about a territorial God who only cares about the people of Israel. No. That's the notion in the day that this God belonged to this land and God is exploding that because he created everybody and everything. And everybody then, because of that, is he's owed worship by them. He wants to show them. He did that so that everybody can know that God's hand is powerful. We started this service with John 3.16 in various languages. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's kind of, that's kind of this verse, isn't it? In the person of Christ, the final complete word that the gospel, the good news is for everyone, that God is moving on behalf of all the nations of the world. So that's part of why our vision chases that as well. In the chronology of our time, in our place, in taking these Kairos moments and remembering what God has done, not only in the past, but his work in the present. That's an outward face for other people. It's a missionary perspective that God is doing things in the world, but it's also something for us too. Look at what for who identify within the church. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. It's not just a memorial for other people. It's also something for us who follow as well. Maybe identify as a follower of Christ. So that you might fear the Lord. And I would describe fear as a deep reverence. Rooted in love. Most people don't think of it that way, maybe the love part, but this is a deep reverence rooted in love. 
Chesed is God's covenant love. And he says, you will be my people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. He's the one who rescued them and brought them to himself and brought them to this point. That comes out of his love for his people. And that is a reflexive reality. It's his love toward us from him, which moves us toward our love for him from us. See, we revere him because he has shown us his love. We love him because he's loved us. It's reflexive. Putting him in the proper place is so important, and that's part of what it looks like in your daily life to revere God. He's in the proper place, not these idols who really can't love you back. You manipulate them, but you pack them in a suitcase and take them somewhere else. God can't be contained like that. And in the moment of desperation, don't you want a God who's not geographically located somewhere else? Or who doesn't know what you're experiencing? So we ourselves revere him out of a love that we have for him and that he has for us as well. Unless the Lord builds a house, it's builder's labor in vain. It's just worthless. That was one of my opening verses of praying, even for Redeemer at the beginning. And that's something we need to continue to stick with along the way. Unless the Lord builds a house, we are just doing something in vanity. So he's calling us again and again and again to remember these things. Now, final point is celebrating God's work in the past and his work in the present and because of that, we can expect God's work in the future. And see, I have a colon, and I have absolutely nothing written past this. It's a blank. I don't know what God's going to do next, so I can't fill that in. I can talk about some ideas and plans, and I have no problem thinking of new ideas. But I don't know, I don't know what goes in there next. I just know who's going to be there with us. I know who's for us along the way. So we can look forward, if the next 10 years bring us to 10 more years and a celebration of 20 years, fantastic. I don't know, but I know God is there. And I know that unless he builds this house, we're going to labor in vain. So the celebration today is an expectation that God is continuing to work. And that at the end of the day, we labor, we plant, we sow, but he's the one who's going to cause the growth. And that's true in me and in us and in the world as well. So when we celebrate today, that's what I have in mind, a celebration of God's power, his presence, his faithfulness. Let's celebrate that together. And as we move over to the Redeemer house soon and eat some food and watch a video if you get a chance, why don't you take that, that moment as well, we're not formalizing this, to look back on God's faithfulness to you in the past 10 years or the past year or whatever the case may be. It's an informal stories of grace invitation. Let's just celebrate what God has done and give thanks, but also expect and anticipate his work in the future. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God. I don't know what comes next. None of us knows. But I am so grateful that the God who's been written about in the book of Joshua, the one who thousands of years ago, and the one who's written about in, 
in the book of Acts, again, thousands of years ago, is the God who's writing a story right now. Not just in Redeemer Church, but in every single person who's within hearing distance. And I pray that we take a moment to look back and remember your faithfulness and do that repeatedly so that we have strength for the present and that you would remind us again that no matter what future may come, you are with us and you are for us and that you are continuing to work in defining moments. May we find rest and strength, encouragement and anticipation in that reality. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.